Welcome to the Mostly AV Who We Are show. In this series, we highlight an AV professional, learn more about their story, and get their take on our industry. And now, without further ado, please welcome our hosts, Michelle Lorette and Jerry Gallegos. Welcome, everybody. Michelle? Hey, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How's, um, how's unemployment treating you? Uh, quiet. <laughs> it's funny how the world works that way. Well, I'm excited because one of my Twitter friends is joining us today. Uh, he's a good guy. He hails from uh, the great state of Connecticut, the lovely town of Danbury. Um, Rob Lutz, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm really well, guys, and I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I am one of your earliest and maybe oldest fans, you know. Oh. I- I was kind of a that. casual listener when you first started and uh long time listener, a, first time <laughs> caller. Now, now that we scheduled it for this week, I became a binge listener this week. I've been doing like side work in my house, like spackling a closet in my bedroom and stuff and repainting. And it's been on in the background all the time. So that's hilarious. You'll find that I'm gonna refer to uh shows and guests that you guys are like, wait, someone said that? What? Huh? Because I might have the freshest memory of your show right now. Uh, I love that. That is so flattering. Thank you. Oh, man, it's great. That's- um, yeah, I like to, you guys are like, I don't know, I don't listen to a lot of the other ones, and I've never heard the AV Jam one yet. But They're pretty funny. <laughs> listening to you guys, it's, it's a great, honest take, you know? Everyone's kind of telling the truth. They're, they're being as tactful and diplomatic as they can, but they're being honest, you know, about what they're seeing out there, and it's yeah. really, really worthwhile. Um, I know it's had a Texas-centric feel, and I'm going to shout out to all the uh, Twitter guys in New York now, you know, Neto, uh, Danto, um, who else? Uh, Gabe out here in Connecticut, see what he's doing. I don't Uh even know, you probably know a lot more than I do, Michelle, but uh, let's get those guys on board and have them part of the listening crew as well. Oh, absolutely. I I would be honored. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's fun. I enjoy it. It's really nice. Uh, it's nice to meet the people. And, you know, because of my background in recruiting, um, it just made sense for us to try to create a platform for people like you uh, mm-hmm. that have been a victim of a global pandemic. Because, sir, you have been a victim. Although I'm an I, economic victim, yeah. An, uh, an so economic fun. victim, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. So, we want to tell the world about uh, Rob Lutz. Tell, tell us, who, who are you? Where'd you come from? Wow. Is this, my, is this my origin story? Yeah, is it this is the origin story. Origin story yes. Holy cow. All right. Well, let me start by saying that my origin story is 30 years long and it encompasses seven different industry jobs. And nice. Is that okay? Yeah, <laughs> it right. is. It is. And I'll, I'll tell you guys that uh, feel free to interrupt anytime if I say something that catches your eye or anything like that. Um, All right. Oh, also, too, uh, let's try and make this funny. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy <laughs> who first wants to know if something's funny. And if it is funny, then I want to know if it's offensive or not. So I'm, don't worry about offending me, uh, New York sensibilities or anything like that. Let's just uh, have oh, some yeah. fun. Uh, New Yorkers are like AV Brits. They don't get offended by what I say. <laughs> and that's why we're mostly... <laughs> we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. We're going to try real hard. <laughs> All right. So my AV origin story does not start out like most of them. I was not a member of the AV club in high school. No. And, uh, all due respect, I could have cared less about the AV club in high school, although I knew the guy uh, who ran it and his dad and my dad were friends, certainly an upstanding citizen, but you know, it was the last thing on my mind in high school, whether uh, hormones, whatever, it doesn't matter. 
for whatever reason. But uh, yeah, I when I was in high school, I was planning to go to college and become a math teacher. Nice. And I actually went to college for about a year with the intention of doing that. Um, born and raised in New Jersey, um, northern New Jersey, and went to school at Montclair State, uh-huh. right across the river from New York. Uh, spent a year there and realized then that I didn't want to be a math teacher and had to kind of figure out what I wanted to do at that point. Dabbled with the idea of advertising, and that got me to a school that at the time was rated pretty well in advertising, a college that was rated well, and that's the University of Florida, where ah. I went and uh, moved about 1,200 miles from home and decided I was going to go to school down there. And uh, also decided that advertising wasn't so fun for me, but that I may be interested in something more like uh, writing and directing, maybe movies or TV. Um, that was sort of where I was drifting at the time. Where's the creative? And, and yeah. yeah. So, so I, I got into the journalism school there, and they had a what they called the track at that time was called uh, telecommunication. Which, yeah. You right. know, has become something way different in the in the thirty years since then. But that's what they called it, and that was a a really highly respected journalism school that was getting into electronic media. You know, right? Um, I think they had three three radio stations and FM and AM and a low power. Oh, cool. They ran a public television station, uh, WUFT. It services 16 counties in north central Florida. So it's oh, wow. A lot that the station covers, you know. But I got into the, uh, the um, broadcast program there, and, uh, you know, the classes were good. There was good classes in script writing, and uh, there was a film class. You know, I got to actually process film still at that time. And, uh, you know, some really neat classes on, you know, operations and the business aspect of it and all that. Nice. But what really uh, blew me away was when I first went down to the TV studio, you know, and one of my classes was a production class. So you got into, you were, you were able to get into Studio B, the smaller studio, uh-huh. right across the divider was Studio A. And I think the first time I was in Studio B, they were doing a production in Studio A, which was the really nice studio. And I kind of checked it out and talked to someone and turned out any students could volunteer on the newscast every night, 30 minutes live, 530 every night. They threw, I don't know, 15 to 20, 20 to 21 year old kids, uh-huh. almost all of them volunteers, anchors, uh-huh. cameras, floor managers, TDs, uh-huh. audio, everything was kids. Have at it. And That's awesome. Man, we went live every night to 16 counties in north central florida and god bless those people man they they watched us and we made so many freaking mistakes every single night while we were trying to learn this <laughs> but that's brilliant and, uh, that's, brilliant. that's how you learn right exactly oh, it was un- unbelievable it's, i know jerry i know like you like literally the class of fake it to make it kind of thing yeah it was, it's like it here was, just do it <laughs> It was just an unbelievable. I know you like uh, the car analogies. I'll use a motorcycle analogy. You know, when I was uh, when I was growing up, I think in 1985, I had bought an old motorcycle, a, a Honda CB 500T. This thing may be worth like 250, 300 dollars. Nice bike. The first time I the first time I sat at a studio camera in the studio, and this is a gorgeous Sony Philips camera. This camera's worth camera and lens a quarter of a million dollars, right? Uh-huh. Tripod right. camera and lens. The whole thing looks like a, the robot from uh, Lost in Space to me at this point. But I put my hands on those handlebars, and all I can think is my motorcycle at best costs 500 This thing costs 500 times the amount of what my motorcycle costs, and it feels so good, man. It was just amazing. 
amazing. 24 track audio board. Uh, I know that doesn't sound like much to you, Jerry, but for someone who really didn't know much about audio, no, it's a uh, lot. to ride the board for a, a nightly newscast, you know, four yeah. anchor mics, uh, two or three tape machines running packages and, and B-roll from upstairs. Uh, you, you remember cart machines? You, you oh, yeah. pop the cart in and it starts yes. playing. That was the opening music. And you have to start the cart at exactly the right time for the closing yeah. music because Master Control is going to take you out at, you know, this time. And you wanted to push the card at this time so that in a minute and 45 seconds, you get to like the crescendo ending of your music. You right. bring it in wherever you needed to, but you get to the ending right as Master Control was, you know, grabbing you. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. A whole lot of fun. And, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the nicest switcher I ever, the production switcher, the video switcher I'm talking about now, the nicest switcher I ever worked on, Grass Valley 200. And it was the first one I ever worked on too. It was yeah. crazy. You know, I've never seen one as nice since. I mean, an Abacus effects generator at the time was, you know, top of the line. Well, I will tell you, uh, Grass Valley has, well, they have a huge market share. They, they make a really beautiful product to this day. I know because oh, I, we used to be the manufacturer rep for 4A. I don't know if you know mm -hmm. 4A, Japanese. I remember 4A. Sure. I, I used 4A character generators. Oh, uh, Yeah. Remember and character generators. Can I tell you how much I hated competing against Grass Valley? Uh, they they're like the Crestron of of the broad, of NAB. Yeah, and they <laughs> were for they were for years. So it's, it's very frustrating to compete against those people because they have mm -hmm. hearts and minds are on their side, right? And you're well, you're you're competing with them in the mid and lower levels of the right. Economy. You're not yeah. competing with them for the broadcast houses in New York or anything. No, like that. no, 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 no. Yeah, that's no. all Sony and Panasonic. You got to find your niche, and, and yeah. the people who who you know shudder at a Grass Valley price are going to be like, "Oh, look at this 4A product." Yeah, pretty good. Japanese <laughs> make some good stuff. Who knew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, that you know, we were we made so many mistakes. I can remember, and this is a woman I follow on Twitter too. Anytime. Like if you see me post, say, a journalism job or something like that on Twitter, uh -huh. it's because it's because of this woman who's actually still a mentor of mine and I'm still in contact with. Her name is Karen Lee. And I'm going to give her a shout out because her Twitter handle is at Kaylee Tampa. Uh -huh. She was our assistant news director at the time. And she was probably like four or five years older than us. She wasn't much older. You know, she yeah. was just out of a master's program, I think, at Mizzou herself. So... But she was so good at her job, and we were so bad. <laughs> learned our jobs. I can still remember up in the newsroom, she would sit at a, a typewriter. And as the newscast started, she would just start clacking away, clacking away, clacking away. And the worse we got, the more she would type. You know, the, the more mistakes she made, the more she would type. And that piece of paper would come out of the typewriter at 6 o'clock, the end of the uh -huh. newscast. She'd go downstairs with it to the, to the studio, and we'd stand on the set. And she would read off every single mistake we made. Oh, and it wow. would sometimes take longer than a newscast. And there oh. were nights where, where you just wanted to put your head in your hands, you know. Um, I remember my second to last newscast was a total disaster. The second, I should say the second to last one that I directed. I really only think of the ones that I finally directed at the very end, you know. Yeah. And, uh, my second to last one was a total disaster. And you're just working with volunteers, so what can you do? <laughs> but my last one, I got to handpick my crew. So I got to place everybody I wanted in each position. My, uh -huh. my, my uh, Chiron operator, my still store, which you know when you 
you have like the little graphic on the side of their head. That's yeah. all loaded in ahead of time for, for each uh, portion. So my audio per, uh, person, my TD, uh, my floor manager, all my camera people were exactly who I wanted. And from one night to the next, my very worst one where I had to take the blame for every single thing that happened and just suck it up to almost a nearly flawless one where there was uh. nothing to talk about except I had one thing. I was like, you know, I thought we brought in the Chiron a little late on, you know, <laughs> George W or not George W, but the first George Bush. This would have yeah, been yeah, George so it's like, yeah, I thought we were a little bit late there, but the night before we, we, uh, Chiron George Bush was some fucking chic of, you know, somewhere in Kuwait. <laughs> Oops. So bringing it in a little late. Nobody uh. noticed. The one the night before I was like, did you really put a fucking sheep guy around on the president? Wow. <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry, guys. And I know, I know language isn't a big deal. No, I not here. Remember that. Not it's here. 30 years later and I, and I can still remember this guy. I'll give a shout out to Rick Schneider. I think he ended up working for PBS in DC. Uh, ah, cool. Really, really high up. Uh, he was our news director at the time. And he was, I sat in the meeting and I took the blame for everything. And then we had to go into a separate meeting in his office where he was like, did you really put a guy on that for this? And I was like, no, that was Randy. He was my TV. I was like, I did not ask for that. I saw it was wrong. And he put it up there. I didn't say a word. I finally had, the, I finally got a chance to defend myself. <laughs> oh, so after doing, um, so after doing broadcast, what, what, yeah, so, what was your um, next segue? I graduated from there and, you know, at that time they would tell you, you know, it was, it was news. So, you know, if I was going to go and get a job, it was going to be in news. I was going to be like a videographer or an editor, probably start out as something like that. Um, instead, I decided that I was going to move to California. The, the girl that I was seeing was interested in moving to LA. My sister lived in San Francisco at the time and was going through a little rough uh, spot. So I decided we uh, actually drove out to California from Florida and she uh, stopped in LA. I went on up to uh, the Bay area where I kind of went into about a wilderness period for a few years, you know, it was tough. You know, anytime you move from one place to another, you don't have a job. You just hope for the best. For me, it was pretty rough. I was working in a cafe and uh, making maybe like six fifty an hour and yeah. just watch savings dwindle, dwindle, dwindle. Um, I actually have one, one AV story about this period, but it involves a prostitute. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we love this. <laughs> so, so I'm really down, you know, I got, I got this crappy job in a cafe and my, my savings are going away and, and you know, it doesn't, it, it costs a lot to live in the Bay area. Right. Oh yeah. Yes, I, I see a job in the paper and it's maybe like a production coordinator or an assistant editor or something really low level, but it is a production job. And it's at KRON, the NBC affiliate in San Francisco. For me to get from where I lived in Concord slash Walnut Creek, which is way out one of the western spurs of the BART line, yep. it, you know, it cost me a good, a good amount to get into the city, uh, walk from Market Street up to wherever KRON was at the time. I felt like I was going up a few hills, and it's San Francisco, so there's always hills. Um, got into the interview, and... Found out that it was more of a clerical thing. It was it was uh, not what they had kind of said in the ad. Yeah. And it was going to be more clerical. There wasn't going to be any production. You know, you'll start out doing this. Uh, it was, our, you know, just the idea of commuting all the way there every day to just push papers was like, I, I couldn't do it. And I was just crushed to the point where I walked out and I had, you know, 
when I graduated from college, I didn't even own a necktie. And I yeah. don't even, uh, I guess I was wearing one now, but I was wearing like a cheap wool thrift store, you know, pinstripe suit to this interview, charcoal gray. It was disgusting, right? And I walked out of there and I was just so crushed. And it was, you know, probably raining and I had to get home. And I had maybe only the BART ticket in my pocket, not even any money. And this is the only time in my life this has ever happened to me. As soon as I walk out the building, I start walking down the street. A woman walks up to me and, and she says it in the most crude way possible, like exactly the stereotype you'd expect. Hey, baby, want to have a good time? <laughs> and all I can do is just like, I, it's the last thing on my mind at that point, right? I mean, maybe the question any guy would want to be asked. And there couldn't be a worse time in my life for me to be asked this question. I am at such a nader, you know? And all I could think is like, no, no. And I probably said it so sarcastically and I just kept walking down the street. Um, yeah. And that's kind of like uh, sort of the end of my wilderness period. I, I ended up working for like a medical company where I learned a little bit about database administration and stuff like that, but it's the early nineties. It's all DOS programs. Oh, yeah. Nothing that's pertinent anymore other than understanding how to sort and pull data out of uh, you know sheets and stuff. Um, but finally, uh, in 1993, I hook up with um, what was then Viacom Cable. They ran the local origination for San Francisco. Okay. And so this was um, this was public access type stuff, um, Wayne's World type stuff, but it was for the, uh, the cable company. That. So there, and at that time, there was like different uh, ways to do it. You could be a nonprofit, do it yourself, or you could let the cable company do it. No matter how you were doing it, you were using the cable company's money to do it. It was just uh, whether they, right. they kept control, they kept uh, editorial control over it as opposed to just monetary control. And when you're in San Francisco, I think you probably want the editorial control because the peg access is anything goes anyway. Yeah. And San Francisco, it increases by an order of magnitude. <laughs> But for me, I was I was just loving life, you know. I uh, I was finally back in the studio. It was really a rough studio compared to what I was used to, but it was all the instruments you needed. There was a little, right. uh, you know, a control track editing section in the back, so you could do your thing. Uh, and I was the tech guy, you know. When when you were the only guy there, and it was late at night, and there was a production going on, you were the guy. If someone had questions, why something wasn't working, what do I do, you know? So it felt, it felt really good. And that was like a sort of an introduction to me of something that's been with me my whole career is kind of a sense of altruism that I got from that first time. You know, you really felt good right. going there. Yeah. And I mean, it's a diverse city. So I, you know, I can talk about like the weirdos that came in and produced the really odd stuff, but there was a dude who, uh, who was just like a handyman, a, a painter slash carpenter. And he had, you know, he had an idea that if he made a program about how to do this and like an instructional program, instructional program, that it would uh, help his business, you know? And so I taught this guy how to edit, you know, and he taught me a little bit about home improvement. And, uh, you know, um, there was uh, another one that was great was a a bunch of kids who at, at that time were game testers for Sega, who I guess was down in the South Bay somewhere. That's so cool. They would come up and they had a show called Video Game Slams and they would, wow. they would show you the games that they were working on and testing and then they would have reviews, you know, and there'd be a guy who reviewed uh, specifically sports games and a guy uh-huh. who reviewed maybe action games or role, whatever the role-playing game was at the wow, time. that's interesting. I know. So that's, that's, that's pretty, I'm sure that's pretty cutting that. edge by the, at that point. And those kids were so funny too. They, they had stuff that had me rolling. 
stuff that I actually took with me, tapes that I took with me to my next job. Yeah. Where I would incorporate them there, you know, because it was sure. so such good, funny stuff, you know, and they let me do it. It was, uh, it was great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, those kids were a lot of fun. And you go from that to like, you know, you, you start to graduate up in levels of weirdness. There was a JFK conspiracy show. I don't know. I, I vaguely remember somebody being on the set nude one night for the whole time. Uh, whether they showed it or not, I, I don't remember. But uh, there was a lesbian um, line dancing program that we did. Um, oh, that's awesome. The one of the uh, one of the folks higher up than me who worked in the office was uh, she was a, a girl, but she uh, a lesbian, and so uh, it was all her friends and her group. And that was back when <laughs> everybody was line dancing. I mean, for you guys, it's every day, I guess. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Uh, everybody right. was kind of getting into it, right? Was there ever and, a day uh, people weren't oh, like, hey, You know, it was on. bandanas and cowboy hats and, <laughs> oh, yeah. and all this stuff. And it was I see that cool. every day when I get on my yeah. horse and go down to the store. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much Little fun, man. Texas it was a lot of fun. So, yeah, you saw all kinds of stuff there. It was, it was just a wild, a wild scene. And a great place to uh, finally get back into a studio, too, for me. So um, I probably did that for about a year and a half. And here's where we kind of get into where you start hopscotching around a little bit. I, I think it works that way in higher-end broadcast, but for me, for some reason, it worked that way at this level, too. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, to this day, don't know if it was the right move or not, but it was the move I made, and that was uh, to move. And I'd gotten married while I lived in California and also had my, my daughter, too. So oh, okay. We all decided that we were going to move and try it out. We had no idea what it was going to be like, but they you know, offered me a position, and it looked like it was going to be a little bit more responsibility and a little bit more fun. Uh, a company called Pegasus and uh, in Enid, Oklahoma. Okay. And after being in San Francisco, to go from uh, that environment to Enid, Oklahoma, was almost like a 180-degree uh, Oh, it's a culture shock. It really is, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, in San Francisco, it was run by the cable company. In Enid, it was run kind of by the city, but also as a nonprofit. Yeah. And uh, certainly 180 degrees different in terms of content. You know, there was, there was wow. no more really strange stuff. A lot of emphasis on the church, and because it was such a small town in—I hate to say it—but the middle of nowhere. You know, yeah. I mean, it was it was an hour north of Oklahoma City, an hour west of Tulsa, and an hour south of Wichita, and okay. there were nothing but wheat fields in between. Well, we're you sorry, know? Enid. <laughs> we are sorry, Enid, because <laughs> I, I can't say enough good things about it. I would, you know. It was really a neat experience for me, and, and certainly there's people there that I, uh, you know, connections and friendships. Sure, oh, absolutely. This day. Fantastic people, and you know, just not something that a kid from New Jersey who'd spent most of his life on the coast was uh, yeah. ready for. Me to sure. Too. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was churches. It was uh, the other way that it was a little bit different. It was, is it was the only game in town, right? Oh. I'm in San Francisco. Okay. I'm doing low-end public access. I can get into local origination and public affairs programming too, but they've got four TV stations, every network. They've got five sports teams in San Francisco. They, they don't care about that stuff. When you go to Enid, Oklahoma, and you run the television station, that is the town of Enid, the city of Enid. Oh, right? wow. It's all the churches. It's uh, the Chamber of Commerce. It's all the public affairs programs. There's an Air Force base there, too, 
It may not still be there. <laughs> I hope it is. Vance Air Force Base is in Enid. They do uh, jet training, uh, pilot training for guys in the jets. Like I want to say P-38s, but I could be wrong about that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, they had their own program. Uh-huh. Um, and it, yeah, it was the only TV in town. So th- that same sort of sense of altruism that I had in uh, California was really being magnified here because you were really helping out. This was like well, really- I do want to yeah. confirm that Vance Air Force Base is still open Good. and that they that did. That was during con- the BRAC days. Uh, and they, they, they did the confirm BRAC. their first coronavirus case on the base 20 hours ago. I'm just trying to keep Whoa. it relevant with the times we're living in. So. Wow. 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 Interesting. It's good to know they're still open because I think they were, uh, when I was there, it was part of the BRAC stuff and a lot of bases were closing and they were always, uh, you know, well, that's on that's, one side or the other. The bases you know. end up being such a large part of the local small town economy, you know? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, it would have devastated that town. Well, even Colorado was, Springs, if the, mm-hmm. if the Air Force pulled out, ee, that would hurt yeah. them, you know? We would, Not that they uh, would, but. Yeah, I mean, and we were talking about how, uh, you know, how the whole area that you guys are in, too, it just sort of uh, is tied to the energy sector. And that was no different in Enid, either. I mean, yep. they, oh, yeah, they Oklahoma. had their and bus related to that, too. So if you ended right. up in an energy bus. Uh, same, same with Louisiana, where I'm from. In a close? Yeah. Yep. Brutal, brutal. So, so how long for, did you stay there? I was there for a year and a half. Um, I used to say I did time in Oklahoma for a year and a half, but I don't <laughs> say that anymore. I was in Oklahoma for a year and a half, and it was very enjoyable. Um, Did you have a lot of wanderlust at this time in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. Actually, my, I was – I feel like I, I, my wanderlust was slowing down, but I was feeling a sense of urgency. I, my, my second daughter was born in Oklahoma, too. Oh, okay. So by now you have two kids. And now I have a, a, a sense of urgency. Now, they're going to start school in two to three years. Yeah. No offense, Enid, but I wasn't sure, you know, and maybe I'm a snob and I'll absolutely take, you know, whatever. We'll give you a pass. It's fine. Yeah, in that case. But um, I, you know, I loved my public education in New Jersey and I thought if I moved my kids back to this area that they would get uh, something similar. So that's... Also, don't you want them to be closer to their grandparents and stuff? Sometimes there's like family infrastructure. I don't Mm -hmm. know that, you know. Well. That's a good point. My my wife, who's now my ex-wife, I should say, she is was born and raised in Las Vegas. Oh. So going back east meant we were going to turn our back on her family. Staying west meant you know we were kind of staying clear of my family. My parents had, I think, retired to Florida by that point anyway. Ah, okay. And I think both of my sisters were living, two of my three sisters were living down there. I had one left in New Jersey who was raising her own family. And I think so- that's what I what I came back to get closer to was to have the kids and the cousins. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Get together. Yeah. So yeah. Um, in late 96, I guess I interviewed for what was going to be a new station up in Chappaqua, New York. Newcastle is the name of the town. And New York's confusing because the, the towns and post offices and school districts all have different names. So Chappaqua is <laughs> nice. famous or Hillary Clinton moved to when she decided to run for the Senate. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in 97, they hired me as their very first employee. They just created a nonprofit corporation, and they were going to take control of their programming from the cable company and have their own wow. control. So I was their very first employee of the nonprofit. I had a seven-member board that I reported to, 
and was tasked with uh, building a station, starting up three television channels from nothing. You know, we had the head end from Cablevision, and they had basic uh, Cablevision Unity bulletin boards, they used to call them. And uh, I had to take that and turn it into something. I had a little bit of money, and I skinned the cat as best I could. I built a three-camera studio in the high school. Um, in the back of their library, it's funny. They, this is a high school that uh, was very proud. They just built a, a state-of-the-art library. It had, uh, you know, PC drops at like almost every table and everything else. So it, barely, it, it was one of the first libraries that didn't look like a library anymore. It yeah. didn't have books, and it was more PCs. Like a mall thing. So proud of it. When I interviewed, I remember they showed me the uh, article in an architectural, an educational architectural magazine of some sort. You know. It was, and they love their schools too. If I compare Chappaqua to Enid, Oklahoma, I think probably about a quarter of the students who go to school in Chappaqua is Enid, but their school budget is probably about ten times the size. Oh wow! They, yeah, they, yeah. The property taxes are nuts, right? So um, yeah, they love their schools and they were very proud of their new library. And I built them a tiny little, they had like a little AV section in the back and it wasn't an ideal space for a studio, very low ceiling. You know, I was hanging lights and I had three cameras. I needed to get in there with the tripods and everything else. Tiny space. And I just did the best I could with it. Um, the funny part about that is that uh, it's only 20 years later and I think they've demolished that library and built another one already. The yeah. library's already been outdated. The studio I think is long gone too. It's, you know, it's been digitized since then. Back in those days, um, peg stations would use uh, kind of the old broadcast stuff. So late 90s, everybody was, uh, broad real broadcasters were firmly into beta cam and yeah. moving into digital tape and stuff at that point. But I would imagine BH had a whole corner of their warehouse piled up with old pneumatic decks, old three-quarter inch decks. Uh -huh. so, uh, almost every low-end public access station was was kitted out with a few of those, and you balanced it out with a little S SVHS. Oh, yeah, little YC. Pinky's out. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I built them a studio, um, set them up with a little uh, Sure SCM eight hundred at the town hall for mixing the town board mics and. Whoever was, you know, coming up to address the town board, they had their own mic. I think uh, whatever the standard goosenecks mic, gooseneck mics were, I remember drilling that inch and a half hole into the dais in town hall and thinking, boy, I better know what I'm doing here. I, I'd never built a studio before. I watched the studio get built in Oklahoma right. and helped out. I'd never done any of this from scratch before. So I was and a back little, then they didn't have a YouTube channel that you could watch <laughs> on how to build a broadcast that, studio. I, so you, I uh, wore, the, the poor guy who sold me my, my JVC cameras from New York, I wore him out, man. He was a really nice guy, but boy, I had so many questions for him. You know, I was, I was bad at BNCs. I was bad at soldering. It was amazing that the thing even came together. I mean, it was just a whole patchwork situation, but yeah. I got better at it. And we had, you know, the old, the first Latronics, uh, uh, automated program stuff where you can just uh god i guess it was probably uh i guess it was infrared to some of the vhs decks you know you'd have a little controller in the back of electronics two wires come out with a little infrared that uh sets everything up and so like five or six uh vhs decks three or four umatics i'd run programs all day and change the tapes like once or twice a day and you know run repeats through the night and stuff and so you know even though nobody was there it kind of looked like Looked like a going concern at that point. Yeah. You know? And the people were excited too. It was brand new. 
and uh, the people were excited to fill it with content. You know, you found like some of the strangest folks around. Um, a couple of kids came in, and, and this is like a, a music thing for me. And there's a few a few music things that happened here that I think uh, if I talk about Jerry, would just be like shocked. So I will definitely bring him up. Please <laughs> do. A couple of guys who came in with guitars one night and I'd never met them before. They sat down and I don't know if I'd never heard it or just never heard it. Anyone take to it so easily live. Uh, Friend of the devil, um, the grateful dead song. These guys just sat down with their two guitars and, and the third guy, I think maybe had a bucket. He was doing a little percussion on the, the upturned five gallon bucket or something. Yeah. But those guys just laid right into it and were right in sync immediately and i was just blown away like i had you know thrown some mics out there and just met these guys at night and was like oh here's what you can do you know let me show you what we can, we can do here you know and they were ready to roll you know right. they just started recording and i was like wow this something and that was actually a guy who um all my life i've wanted to learn to play the guitar and here i am at this time probably like 33 34 still haven't learned this guy who i taught you know to make tv would invite me over his house at the end of the night or something. And uh, we'd go down in his basement, he'd have a couple beers, and probably something to smoke too, I'm sure. Um, and he would just show me a couple things, you know, show me like a little uh, 12 bar shuffle or something uh -huh. like that. I can remember the very first song he showed me. And, and I don't know, Michelle, if you'll get this, Jerry, it's a, it was a DGA. It was uh, Bob Dylan's um, Tangled Up in Blue. Oh, okay. And because it's like a ballad and it's got nine, 10, I don't know, 11 verses, you just keep grinding your way through, right? And you find your way back to the beginning again and you're just yeah. like, hey, here we go again. And I just went hours and hours. And he would show me something like once a week. You know, you'd see him in the studio and see what he was working on and help him out with that. But I'd take what he showed me and I'd kind of go home and really just mess around with it for a week. And I'd come right. back weekly like, okay, cool, you got that. Let's look at this shuffle a little bit here and show me that. And he'd be like, all right, you're ready to move up to this and this and this. And over the course of like six months, I got sort of the rudimentary basics of it. Right. And I've not gotten better since then. <laughs> but it's cool that I kind of understand it and the theory and everything now. It's been really fun. It's been really fun. Yeah. So that was like another thing where you just, it's a weird trade-off. You know, I taught this guy how to make shitty TV shows and he was grateful okay. enough that uh, he decided, he'd, you know, show me how to play the guitar. And I was I'm all for bartering. I think that's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I love yeah. it. The, the transfer of knowledge. That's one of yep. the things that I've always enjoyed is being able to pass on the nerdy knowledge that I happen to have mm -hmm. that 99% yeah. of the people couldn't care less about, but that 1% that is interested, I love passing that on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And that, you know, that's something that I've carried with me the whole time, you know, and I'll get into other stuff later on about, you know, more recent stuff where I just felt like that, just really good feeling. You're sitting in a room and there's 400 people in there and there's a, a, a grade school chorus concert going on and your guys put the speakers and the lights in this room and everybody gets up and claps at the end and you're just like, wow. Right. Now, is that with the most recent position? That was my most recent. Yeah. And then, and then you know, I, I, I can, I can say specifics like that about almost every position I've had for the last 20 years. You know? Yeah. It just feels that way. So, um, so I think I guess after about maybe a year or so, uh, the studio was built. Uh, things were kind of up and running. Policies were in place. This this became a, a, a TV station for this this town, you know, and it kind of became the model for all the surrounding towns around here. This is a Westchester County, Ossining, um, Yorktown's another town, Pleasantville. If you've heard of that, they're all around here. Um, 
And so all those other towns were trying to do the same thing. And because they, we had done such a good job, the other towns kind of brought me in once in a while too. And I'd find little freelance opportunities there. I'd put in like a, maybe a small eight channel electronics rather than yeah. a, full, a full blown 16 channel for somebody in, uh, in another town. Or just go and kind of advise them and say, you know, they're like, well, how did you do this? How did you do this? We want to get that done too. And I'd be like, all right, well, right. You just gotta, here's who you got to call. Here's who you got to talk to. You got to, you know. But it's good to share that type together. of tribal knowledge. I mean, that's how right. you, that's how mm-hmm. you lend a hand back, you know, for the yeah, next yeah. guy. The informal, right. informal consultant. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the studio was so frustrating though. You know, it was, it was not a studio space. You know, it was all I could do to get the guys to hang some, uh, two inch strut from the I-beam so I could hang, you know, yeah. for enough lights, you know, but it was so small that it heated up really quick right away. I remember one night we had a uh, chamber orchestra in there. So, and another time that uh, you might be interested in Jerry was, uh, uh, and this was, this is me showing my, uh, you know, terrible sense of audio. And uh, <laughs> I, we had brought in uh, the wife of one of my board members was in the chamber orchestra, the Chappaqua mm-hmm. chamber orchestra. And she played the flute. And uh, she arranged to bring in a four-piece to get recorded in the studio. And uh, the studio was uh, small. I mean, even the riser on the stage was eight feet wide by maybe ten feet deep at most. You know, barely anything. So right. we had to we had to fit in a flute, a full-size harp, and boy, that was amazing instrument. By the way, I'd never seen one like up close in real life. They are something else. So a full-size harp, a flute. I believe it was a cello and a violin or fiddle for you guys, right? Um, on this tiny little stage, yeah. right? eight feet wide, 10 feet deep. And I, I think maybe I had a couple, two, maybe three uh, wired SM58s. I did not have like a really nice mic pack for this studio. I had some MX35 or MX53 labs, you know, with like the little uh, um, bat- the, the A battery that you put in if you didn't want a fan of power. And I might have had two or three SM58s that I used for like my remote cameras and stuff. So I probably put a couple of them on the floor on small stands and just pointed them up on the riser and just tried to capture the whole wash as they came out. I imagine it came out okay. Um, you know, I, there certainly weren't any complaints, and those guys were probably way more expert at, at uh, than I was. But the big mistake I did make was at the very end because, like I said, the studio was so small. Whenever you turn the lights on, it had something going in there. It got hot. Really oh bright. yeah. And so right as we were done, you know, half hour, 45 minutes later, it was so hot in there that I, there's a back door and uh, I wanted to open the back door and start letting the cool air in and get the, you know, exchange the air and get it to a, a decent temperature. Uh, everybody kind of panicked. They're like, oh, you got to shut the door. You got to shut the door. You don't, you don't want the harp to, you know, change oh, yeah. so quickly. Oh, all no. And all that wood. Right, to, right. Uh, damage it in some way or make it contract or expand so quickly right. that it's it's problematic so yeah, i can yeah. imagine I that, yeah. Less that. Yeah. Yeah. oh that yeah and the violin too they're probably just as susceptible just not as as large an item you know yeah yeah you gotta figure out a harp has that however many i don't know how many strings they have but you know at least like 30 or something strings and they're all high tension and you got well, i'm just curious for the musicians were they um were they covered in flop sweat by the time they were done? Because they did not seem to be. Yeah, I, I, I probably was. I probably was more nervous than anybody. You know, I was. These are expensive instruments to me. I don't know the person. Yeah. About them. You know, like I, this guy taught me to play the guitar, but that did, that doesn't mean I bought like a three thousand dollar piece. I mean, right. That's, that's my speed. 
these guys were professionals and they were yeah so i was probably the one more nervous than anyone else yeah i wanted to sound good for sure and i kind of think i pulled it off although i'm sure jerry would be disappointed but hey, you know uh, best i could do i was a tv guy i was a video guy was, yeah i mean audio in some ways can be simpler than most people make it out to be mm -hmm. i agree with you i agree yeah. with you um and in some ways it can be so complex. Like when I watch yeah. a guy tune a room or when I'm standing in a room mm -hmm. that's been tuned right and, and there's there's a, an event happening, man, it feels good. And, and and I'm finally at a point where I notice it and appreciate it now a little bit too. Right. And that's just in the last couple of years I've been able to develop that because of the guys I'm working with now. Yeah. So here we are in Chappaqua. I'm finally back in New York, married, two very small kids not living in new york another side note i've worked in new york for 25 years of my life and i've never yet lived in new york i've either lived in new jersey or connecticut while and i worked in new york just always commuted i've always commuted yeah and one thing about uh commuting up here is you never want to cross a river whether it's the hudson river whether it's the east river whether it's rivers further out in connecticut it's just a bad idea you know okay you want to good to know if you're going to commute it's already bad enough if you're going to commute, you do not want to commute across the river. Generally, generally. Um, so yeah. So anyway, um, where were we? <laughs> I had uh, finished. Okay, so about a year into this, the the studio's built. the The policies and procedures are in place, and uh, I've got like an intern, and I've also got an assistant now. So a lot of the tape changes and stuff like that. Things are things are happening. I've got a little more time to myself. Um, I decide that I'm going to go and uh, I actually get contacted by my salesman that I used in New York, the guy I bought my JVC cameras from. He wants to know if I'm busy and if I want to take on any extra work. And it's doing integration work. So for about most of 98, I am sort of part-time with these guys, a little bit of a freelancer. I'm commuting into New York. It's a long, long way to New York from Danbury, Connecticut. We can get into that uh, a little bit more, but it is a long commute, so it's not ideal for me, but I'm loving the work I do, right? I'm terminating, I'm, I'm bombing all over the five boroughs. Uh, nice. For that, for the five years that I was there, there was nobody more familiar with the New York City subway than me. I was on those trains like four to six times a day, just yeah. going all over. It, it, I was doing both for about a year, um, and then I kind of phased out the Chappaqua one in favor of the New York one, and the long commute and the shitty money because I was just, you know, having a good time. The, uh, the same studio that I built in Westchester County with the same salesman who I was now working with uh -huh. at an integrator is the cookie cutter model. We had an in with um, a government agency, what they call the New York school construction authority or something like that you know mm -hmm. this guy had put together the template for that um, okay specific cameras that i used an old uh h8 um input echo lab switcher those <laughs> remember those uh those old nasty videonics character generators they were so gross but we had, <laughs> that was part of it and i just had to live with that probably like a a 1402 or a 1604 mackie in every single right. one and they all just kind of went together the same way. But yeah. this is back in the days when the, the tape decks needed time-based correctors. And yeah. So you needed master sync, you needed, uh, you needed a tape deck that was gonna run into a TBC, and 
you could mess around with effects in that way if you wanted to. As well. Rob, I, I tell people all the time, this shit used to be really hard. Okay. <laughs> I, all right. Really, you really you have no idea. This used to be so oh difficult. Oh my God. Just the idea of, of master sync and Genlock, right? And yeah. Just, and, and, and the front porch and the back porch and, you know, the, the 85 IRE when you're balancing cameras and what's the right white level, what's the white black level, all this other stuff. Yeah, it was crazy. Remember the 26 pin camera cables from the cameras to the CCUs? Oh, yeah. 26 pins, 26 strands of copper going through there, handling intercom, uh, component video if you needed that, return video, uh -huh. two channels of least it was just everything was going on in there tally, was, uh, tally signals you needed tally signals to come back right yeah. and that's all done through well it, it went to triax eventually and it's all through uh Cinti yeah. now it's all multiplex through the fiber yeah. it's even more expensive <laughs> those uh those Hiroshi connectors were 150 dollars each and that uh -huh. uh, ccza sony cable uh -huh. that stuff was expensive it was well over uh probably well over five six dollars a foot yeah. You know, 26, 26 conductors of copper. That's a lot of copper. Yeah. yeah. I did so. quite a bit of triax in my days and it's not fun. And you got to be very, very precise. <laughs> and if you see yeah. one connector, you're like, oh crap, there goes however much they were. They were real expensive. They were expensive too. I think, uh, I think at the end of my time at BTX, they were probably like uh, 40, 50 a piece easily. Mm -hmm. And that was when triax was sort of fading in relevance. Then. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. I keep fifteen getting, years. Uh, fifteen years is a is a pretty uh, substantial amount of time that you were at BTX. Yeah, it is a substantial amount of time. I started there in two thousand two. Let me let me if I can just wrap up how I finished my time. In oh yeah. Too, because, oh yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah go for it. It was actually they they weren't they were an integrator at the time, and when when this guy Marvin, who was my salesman, uh, when he called me to to you know see if I wanted to go there, they were a uh, magnetic tape dealer. They sold uh, magnetic tape. Nice. So, you know, tons of VHS, cases of VHS, cases mm -hmm. of uh, yeah. Betacamp rolling out their door every day. But at the same time, the owner of this company knew that tape was going away and he needed to do something else. He was, he was trying to incorporate an integration um, aspect to help him defray as, as magnetic yeah. tape would go away. He was going to, you know, work his way into integration. Um, and that was your forte. Well, that wasn't my forte and that was probably part of the problem, right? I mean, I had built, a, I had watched someone build a studio in Oklahoma. I'd come to Westchester County and built my own. However, you know, hope or uh, prayer. It was, you know, but it, it worked. And now I was being thrown into New York and I was showing up at on-demand cable to fix their edit suites. And I was going out to the Richmond County DA's office to put together a, a new tech system for their, uh, you know, witness room and things like that. And I was going to uh, law offices and putting in conference rooms and stuff. And, and I was in way over my head. And I have to say, I was probably holding things back as much as anyone else while I was really trying to learn this stuff. You know, it, I was not good at it for six to nine months. And I finally got good at it. And I don't know. I think the, the timing was a little messed up. I think he might've got started too late trying to get, rolling as an integrator uh -huh. um and then this the second part of it was you know you can't you can't just say i'm going to be an integrator and wow you're you're doing jobs right, right. you have to you have to learn how to do them you have to, your whole staff has to learn how to do them. you have to learn what the most efficient best processes are you know right. uh, 
Hopefully I would argue that there's in. some in business now that they still don't know what they're doing, but I don't know. That's just, there's quite a bit actually. There's a lot of them. Yeah. We can talk about that too, in terms of who survives and who does it in the next six yeah. months. Um, but so for, for them, yeah, I think they probably could have benefited by hiring someone from an integrator to really run the whole thing. Uh, the guy that I reported to, we were an integration staff of maybe two, right? Mm-hmm. I was the guy running around with a tool bag and 25 feet of 9451 and 25 feet of 1505A, <laughs> six BNCs and six different uh, genders of XLR in my bag. And I was, you know, moving all over the city, generating revenue. The other guy was kind of our design guy and he was back getting the jobs done, show me what I got to hook up, giving me the map. But it was a small shop, two people. And um, he was from a production uh, background too. He had worked for the the higher end broadcasters like the ABCs and stuff. So he kind of knew what he was doing. But production is different than integration, you know? And it's a different skill set. And so uh, neither one of us had the the native skill set to really make it work. And by the time we developed the skill set, you know, uh, we were we were already behind the eight ball. The, the revenues were dropping from the tape sales, and we were already being asked to be the sole source of revenue or the primary source of revenue. And we had only just gotten you know kind of good at it. Yeah, I remember the last school we did in uh, Brooklyn went off like clockwork. Except I'd go back to the office and brag about it, and everybody'd be like, "Oh, that's good. That means we got four more weeks to go because this is our last job we're going to do." And I felt you know I'd feel terrible, but yeah. uh, that's kind of how it went. And the other thing that contributed to it was 9-11. I mean, I started for this company in 98 and, you know, we, I felt like I was really hitting my stride through 2000 and early 2001 in terms of uh, my abilities and my technical abilities and my ability not only to, to solve jobs, but to solve them in one visit, you know, mm-hmm. what's worse than the multiple visits or having to go back, right? So to get them done the first time and not have to go back and discuss them or anything like that. Um, and then... I mean, the economy cratered, at least for, for that amount of time. It was June, June 2002. They went under. That Do was you it. Think, so, does this feel uh, similar in any way to 9-11? No. No. It's I was like just curious. Just. I mean, you, <laughs> no, you live up in that area. I'll, I'll take your word for it. I was just curious. Um, no. Well, 9-11 was... 9-11 was... I don't want to say localized because certainly everyone did feel it and, and the, the, the support for the bruised apple, which is what I like to call it at the time, was very high yeah. and, and very much appreciated, right? right. Um, but it was, it was localized and it, it affected the economy, but you knew it was going to be short term. Um, yeah. They didn't cancel sports. That also well, helped. They did for about a week. Yeah, a week. For about a week. Because no. I remember that was, that was the week that Florida was supposed to play Tennessee. And uh-huh. they, that was a national championship year for Florida. Uh, they didn't play Tennessee till later in the season, and Tennessee beat them. They ended up, I think, uh, just missing out on the national championship that, that year. Yeah. All because they couldn't take care of Tennessee early in the year, and they got spanked by them late. That's <laughs> Only the real late. reason that the men are in mourning about this uh, <laughs> this quarantine, lockdown, whatever. It's because sports has been canceled. And you, know what's interesting. you know what's interesting is that 9-11 for me was the start of my sort of pulling away from sports. I was a sports guy. My dad played semi-pro baseball 
baseball. Oh, nice. He wanted me to be a baseball player. He pushed me as a, you know, to play baseball. And you were like, no, dad, I'm going to be a mathematician. Hello. Yeah. Well, it's that line that Kevin Costner has in Field of Dreams. You like taking out the garbage, you know, and and as dedicated as he was, I just was not into it. You know, girls, music, whatever. It didn't matter. Yeah. Um, But I was huge into sports as a kid. And something about that and, and, Living through that, being in Manhattan that day, you know, having to return to Manhattan uh, two two days later, which was my my oldest daughter's eighth birthday. My nine eleven story isn't a nine eleven story. My nine eleven story is a nine thirteen story. Two days later, September thirteenth, I have to go to Staten Island, mm-hmm. and to go to Staten Island from where I lived in Danbury, Connecticut, requires every kind of commute you can imagine. Um, I would get in my car, I would drive to a park and ride where I would get on a bus that would take me across the New York state line to the Metro North train station, the commuter train down to Manhattan. I'd ride for the commuter train for 90 minutes down to Manhattan, Grand Central Terminal. I'd then get on the number six train and ride that down to Bowling Green, all the way at the bottom of Manhattan. I'd pop up out of Bowling Green, walk to the Staten Island Ferry, the freaking boat, uh-huh. and get on that. For another 45 minutes, and I'd be in Staten Island, th- over three hours door to door. It would take That's me to insane. get that when I had to go there every day. Yeah. And so two days after 9-11, that's where I have to go. My longest commute. And it was a terrible day. 9-11, one, one of the 10 best days of the year, right? A beautiful day. Yeah. Um, but it was a, a terrible day. Um, rainy, nasty, cold. And I get onto the six train and I'm riding down to Bowling Green and I got my tool bag and everything else. And I am one of the only people on this train. There's nobody in the city still. Right. I get to Bowling Green and my, my route out of the Bowling Green station is the southernmost exit. And I come out of the train and there's nobody else in the station. There's the, the station agent inside the booth and me. Was it surreal? Bowling Green subway station. Yeah. Very surreal. I mean, you're just like now, surveying the landscape, like really? Except now I'm making my beeline to the southern exit and I'm going up the stairs and I finally see two other people. And you know who they are? They're fully dressed, fully combat Marines, M16 machine guns, all the body armor, all the, the helmets, everything. We are the only two people in, Bat- in Bowling Green at that time, you know? And it was just bizarre. You know, it did not feel like home at all at that point. Very strange. Yeah, I think having, I think people having to go through something like this that we, we don't have a, we don't have a, a playbook, you know, we don't have a recent history that we can draw on and we don't know how long it's going to take to get there. That just creates all this uncertainty. And you had mentioned, um, the concern now being the opportunity that people can get reinfected, correct? That it can mutate yeah, itself. Yeah, sure. Right, the whole second wave type thing. Yeah. They're, they're predicting will happen. Um, yeah, so I think for that reason, there's a lot of reasons why I would consider it different than 9-11. And I've heard people compare it to the 2008 financial crisis too. Um, I think I said on, on Twitter on one of those AV and the AM days that for me, and I'm, I'm, you know, a lot older than most of the people that we talk to and work with. But for me, the thing that reminds me of most, when I was about eight years old, the, the energy crisis in the early 70s. Yeah. It's, it yeah. felt like more of a panicky situation. Yeah. And 
I feel terrible now. I go to the grocery store and everybody's in masks and, and everybody's just kind of looking at each other a little suspiciously. It feels like there's a real level of anxiety and people on edge. Oh, right absolutely. Now. And and that's something that there was there was certainly anxiety related to nine eleven, but but it wasn't there was, an, there was ang- more it was more love. There was more it felt yeah. like more love then. Like this it was is, more of a unifying event. This to is an anxiety that's, get that's away making from us a little bit, uh, a little bit suspicious of each other too. You know, like why aren't you wearing a mask and why are right. you standing closer than six feet from me? Why aren't you paying uh, attention to the X on the floor? <laughs> and it's a, a election they, year, which always is a horrible year for me anyway, because then everybody gets on my nerves. Um, you're welcome. Uh, thank you, Jerry. Um, with all their rhetoric. Lots By of way, rhetoric. Guys, I, thought this was, I thought this was going to be a happy hour, so I'm already three drinks in. <laughs> oh, look at you. <laughs> well, I can make that happen. It's not two, it's three. There's no such thing as bad day drinking these days. No, I agree. No such thing. I am, I am drinking so much out of boredom these days. I never thought I would. <laughs> Here I am. Just so oh, three o'clock, keep, what are you going to do? You keep talking with Jerry on your journey. I'll be right back. All right, so. That's good. Sorry, guys. I know we're just um, kind of rambling on. Are you know. guys taking bathroom breaks? Yeah. Cool. That's what I was like. I was like, oh, man, crap. And I had to let the dog out. So, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. We talked a little bit about 9-11 about and, and whether or not it, uh, it, you know, feels like today. And, and what I told right. Michelle when I said on Twitter a couple of weeks ago is that for me, and I don't know if, if, if you remember this, it certainly would have been probably more prominent down in Texas, but uh, the early '70s energy crisis for me. Oh yeah, I had more of a feeling of that whole panic. I can remember my dad filling up 55 gallon drums with gas. You know, yeah. Think I remember for some reason he wasn't get it. Yeah, I remember we used to we having waiting lines to get to mm-hmm. gas and yeah, and you worried that you were going to run out of gas while you were waiting in line. There is something similar to that here now, though. Those drive-through testing centers. Uh, yeah people are having to wait so long there that there is a concern that they run out of gas while they wait. And, you know, it gets into the whole economics of lower income. You don't have the money for gas. You don't have the money for the test and all that. But uh, there's, that's one similarity, but this is, that's what it feels like most to me, that sort of low level sort of possibility that uh, things are never going to be the same. And I oh, yeah. honestly think, that things that we're still sort of recovering and, and still a little bit affected by that energy crisis, believe it or not, you know, oh, uh, yeah. the issues we talk about and the things we deal with have dealt with for the last 40 years have been in a lot of ways related to that. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know. It's uh, I mean, you know, the, the movie theater chains have all filed for bankruptcy, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. the city of San Antonio's government, because all the travel stopped. They had like, I think it was 130 or 140 positions that were funded by that percentage of travel taxes, right? right. From the hotels and, and rental cars and all that right. good stuff. They had to lay off all those people in one foul swoop from the city government because of no tourism. I mean, yeah. I haven't seen any videos of the Riverwalk, but I'm sure it's empty. Listen, even in a even in a fragmented and graduated reopen, mm-hmm. when will people when will people be sitting that close in movie theaters again? Oh, I know. Right. I don't think it's before the end of this year. 
So I think there's an opportunity in the, um, I think in the home, the residential side, people are going to want to have much nicer residential systems. Yeah. And all all of a sudden everybody's like, well, now I know why I want my home theater. Uh Every every guy just got a justification for having the nice home theater. I know. God, all the men get men caves (laughs) now. Wow. Does that mean we all become resi, or can we still consider ourselves commercial? Are we kind of? Are we kind of? Oh, no, we got to keep that rivalry alive. <laughs> oh yeah, up resi for commercial, or have we become resi? Yeah, that's. Uh, we would probably just consider ourselves slumming in resi because that's that's how pro AV people are. They, they're they're a bit full of themselves. <laughs> That's going to be a big business, though, because seriously, everybody's going to want a very nice office set up now, and that's somewhere Mm -hmm. that we can thrive, you know? Because somebody said, they said, well, uh, they wouldn't need necessarily like an appliance-based codec, which, by the way, you can get an appliance-based codec for, you know, not very much. Uh, And I said, Mm -hmm. you know, they could just go online just like you do when you're sitting at your home office. And I said, this is a C-level person. Every C-level person, <laughs> it's like you saying that you're not going to put a hardware-based codec in the boardroom. Well, then you're a dum-dum because you're always going to have a better purpose-built appliance-based experience. And when the stakes are high and that stuff always needs to mm-hmm. work, yes, you are going to put an appliance. And guess what? They'll pay for it because that's what they want. Yeah. And they always get what they want because they're the C-suite. Have we not learned anything? The stakes are high, even in the C-suite home office. A- absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I, I actually get to deal with that by proxy because my wife is a executive assistant to a CEO president of one uh, big organization here in town. Yeah. I, yeah. So oh. I, get, I get to hear, you know, hear her go into her office and get to hear the conversations of their frustrations because they were not ready to yeah. do yeah. video conferencing and working from home. They were not ready for that. So their, wow. their IT department's panicking and they finally kind of got, you know, they were, they were barely in the, in the process of adopting teams into their structure. Um, and now they've jumped in with both feet. Yay. Right. You, so, yeah. you want to hear something funny guys? That's me too. You know, I've been working at this place the last two years, and, and uh, every time someone wants to call in and check a Zoom connection on a, on a room we're building out in the field, it hits it hits the Zoom uh, you know right behind me on our on yeah. our uh, conference table. I'm in I'm in the main office area. I'm doing my thing. I'm sort of right. the hub of the wheel at that point. But anytime someone wants to do that, I just turn around, hit the conference, tell them I can hear them well. You know, the MXA sounds great. Blah blah blah. You know, you sound great. You look great. How's the camera look? Great. I just turn back around and start working again and, and they'll start working with maybe the programmer or something like that on some IP stuff or whatever. Uh, the call will keep going on and they'll keep testing things, but I'm not even paying attention. Mm-hmm. I know how to start a zoom call, let someone know I hear them. They tell me that I, that I sound good, that the MXA sounds good on the other end. And I'm like, all right, I'm going back to work. You know, Yeah. it's not till two days ago when I sat down with you guys that I even loaded zoom on my laptop for the first time. Yeah. I see people doing those, uh, the backgrounds, the chroma key uh-huh. backgrounds that they got. I'm yeah. like, how are you doing it? I have no idea <laughs> how you do it. <laughs> Actually, to a certain extent, like the background things, those features that for me was very utilitarian. I didn't know that it was even a possibility until like, I think it was the, on the very first uh, happy hour that we did. 
Yeah. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is cool. Because, I mean, honestly, because on that happy hour that we did, the very first one, uh, the amount of horsepower, of brain horsepower on that call was like, uh, holy crap. Uh, it was like, you know, there's yeah. a bomb going to explode <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Well, I I, I gotta say I did notice that I was not happy with the chroma key, and maybe that's maybe that's just me who used to cut chroma keys at like well, you know what real chroma never the same color. I, it yeah. all it looked like, it reminded me of, of back in the composite video days too. You you're, know, the, you're the, well, yeah, well, yeah, if you think about it though, that's a technology that's available at at the flip of a switch on Zoom. Mm-hmm. That that any that will and nail you can just turn it on. It's it's it. it you can't have too busy that, of a background. That, like it won't that, trigger off mine. Used to used to have to used to have to set up uh, a, 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 about three different connections to do a chroma key through like a BNC connection. Uh, right. Yeah. Cut well, the key. You have to fill the key with the background, and then you have to trim the edge. The only good thing about it then was that the edges were easier to trim because they weren't so the resolution wasn't so high. Right. When I was watching the guys the other day at high resolution, it's the headsets mostly. They turn their head with the headsets on. Yeah, and so you start to kind of see the the artifacts and stuff. Mm. Right. Just, All right. So think about that. The quality of that right now it's phenomenally amazing. Oh, considering how it was, all she had to do was basically hit a little uh, checkbox, mm-hmm. and yeah. the boom is done. And she does. I remember oh, yeah. back in the day doing chroma key. You have to light the green screen. You have to light it perfectly. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you start getting some. Oh, yeah. Light. Uniformly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, so. God help somebody. God help your weatherman if you wore a green tie. That, that, exactly. You were going to see. You were going to see Topeka through his chest. Mm-hmm. Who let the queen mother wear a green dress for her speech? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. The did British get, press went out? crazy with it. They because oh, it's they, a green screen, so they all did different overlays. And oh, oh my god, yeah. they took it and ran with it. Okay, yeah, I mean that's a great example of just a, a tool that that thirty years ago was insanely expensive and prohibitive for anybody to use. That's now we're, we're kind of walking around with in our pocket. You know, the other thing I think about too is uh, Jerry. You remember uh, AB roll editing when you'd have oh, like yeah, an yeah. A, a machine, a B machine, time code editing. Oh yes, I remember seeing the uh, the editing suites. Then you know that was like a, a massive room, and it, it had its own grass valley. It had a grass valley one hundred in it. Now you're talking about almost a half a million dollars of gear in one room. Now we're walking around with the ability. Thirty years later, we're walking around with the ability to technically A B roll edit in our pockets. You know, it's just incredible for I don't know fraction of the cost. Yeah, exactly. What is that you got? Is that a background you threw in? Yeah, see, my, <laughs> we, we my, my lighting, about, uh, my, my background is so busy, podcast. it doesn't trigger off well. All right, so um, this is an iPad. Is there a way for me to do it on the iPad? If you go, you sh- actually, I don't know the iPad interface. I, I own an iPad, but don't Let me know. see. That's okay, and I, I, I thought it would be obvious, but I didn't really see it the other day. And I kind of want to try it on the laptop because I think it's probably really easy on the laptop. It is on the laptop. Yeah. So before we get too distracted, let's continue with the story. Yeah, we should continue with the story. So I guess we kind of left off in the spring of 2002. Uh, you know, a company that was trying to transition into integration just did it a little bit too late and then just got obliterated by 9-11. They didn't really have a chance. So by the spring of 2002, I was out of work. Um, I decided I was going to have myself a little summer vacation. I took about six weeks, painted my house, painted the outside of my house. That's wow. worthwhile. 
that was very worthwhile. And boy, it was, it was a lot of hard work, but it was a, a good thing to do at that time. And uh, while I was painting it, I was looking for work. And believe it or not, I found an ad in the New York Times. And it turned out it was for a place that not only was I familiar with, but a place that I was a customer of for the last five years. I used to buy Kings and Neutrik connectors from them. And they had just, uh, I guess, started working with Belden Cable, which I was very familiar with. So I answered the ad. I had a quick phone interview with the uh, inside sales manager. It was for an inside technical sales position at the time. Uh, I had a quick phone interview. was back in there a couple days later for an in-person interview. Uh-huh. And I have to say, you know, and I've had probably 30, 35 jobs in my life and many more interviews. This was probably the best interview I ever had. Oh, yeah. That's a great feeling. BTX, BTX had just picked up Belden about a month or so before. And one of the first questions I got asked in the interview was, how familiar are you with Belden? And I had just finished spending five years, like I said, walking around yep. New York City with 25 feet of Belden coax and 25 feet of Belden 22-2 in my bag at all times. In case Which I pretty much that. made you a subject matter expert. <laughs> uh, in two minutes, I probably, I probably reeled off about 20 Belden part numbers. And a distributor that had just picked up Belden a month and a half before and was very interested in selling it. So the inside sales manager got up at that point and went and got the president of the company, the owner of the company. And uh, yeah, within you know a couple hours, it was, it was kind of a done deal. I will say that the owner of the company, um, Greg Schwartz, the owner of BTX, he um, asked me a couple of really interesting questions in the interview that kind of still stick with me. Uh, the first of which was, uh, you know, he was looking at my resume and said, you know, you've never been anywhere more than, you know, three, maybe four years at most. What, what is it about you that's going to keep you here? And I was just really frank with him. I said, you know what, just keep finding me interesting things to do, you know, keep me, keep me interested, keep mm-hmm. finding me new things to do and you'll keep me around and it'll be, it'll be good for both of us. And for 15 years, it really worked out that way, you know? And the second question he asked me, which I thought I was answering really horrible at the time, but it turned out was, was amazingly prescient, was he said, where do you see the future in this, in this industry? You know? And I, I'd already seen uh, at the lowest end in the public access stations and stuff like that, a real democratization of the tools, mm-hmm. right? You talk about how prohibitive it would be to do chroma key 25 years ago or AB roll editing 25 years ago. Well, right. now we can all do it. And in 2002, that was the that was the first part of that. I remember the the, the first uh, Canon. Um, I don't remember those those uh, uh, 1080p cameras, those little Canon sort of camcorders that they had. Oh, yeah. uh, they probably still make them now. That was when those first came out, and uh, you know, nonlinear editing and digital editing mm-hmm. for both audio and video was was taken off, and and the prices were dropping. It was all computers now, and the prices were dropping the same way computer prices dropped. And so that was my answer was that I see like a democratization uh, more, the hands get into more, uh, the tools get into more people's hands. Yep. And boy, I didn't think I was right at the time. And I thought it sounded a little foolish in the interview, but wow, it has really, really come. And to now mind. look, you're AV Nostradamus, just like that, Rob, just like, <laughs> just that. like that. I like that. I see, like that see, how, see how that works. Um, <laughs> good call. Good call. And uh, you did stay there. How many years? I was there 15 years. Yeah, That's let's a talk, long time. Let's talk about BTX. Um, I started out there as a sales engineer. And man, did that company have a massive fucking line card. 
right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Neutra, Kings, Belden, who was new at the time, West Penn. And then over the years, they picked up things like, uh, well, we had Kramer to start with. I'd yep. love to talk a little bit about Kramer. I, I remember the first Kramer presentation switcher I saw. Uh, it was like in my first month or so there, the old 700 series had, I think, composite like a BNC inputs and maybe some VGA inputs on the back. They had what they call their uh, seamless transition. <laughs> and Jerry, you know, but, well, we talked about sync a little bit. You know, if you don't have proper sync, you try to switch from one camera to another, you see the, the glitch, right? And nobody right. wants to do that. So <laughs> Kramer's first presentation switcher, uh, I forget what they called it. It had like a special trademark name, uh, but it was a seamless transition. Uh, a little computer dip to black. They just cut with a, a little computer lay-in, faded to black, fade out, fade did the transition complete with the glitch behind the black, and then they came back up from black, and it was, you know, perfect at that point. It was just, uh, the most amazing <laughs> thing you ever saw. It was magic. It was really magic. So that was uh, one of my first experiences with Kramer, and I love Kramer. I loved Kramer when I started at BTX, and I, I, I kind of don't like him as much anymore, but only what? because Kramer, Kramer was so... It's my new solid. job. Whatever. You I love know, that company. You Kramer was so solid in the analog space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, with composite video and even VGA DAs, you know. My first four or five years there, we sold two, three, and four output VJDAs all day long, at least one or two a day, if not more. They were leaving the place every single day. Great products. When Kramer had to move, when they were forced to go into digital and then also try to get into um, twisted pair stuff, Mm -hmm. I think they lagged behind a little bit. They were always more expensive. You know, Geffen and Atlona were coming in below them and... You know, they couldn't, they couldn't justify, you know, you couldn't just be Kramer and be rock solid anymore. Everyone else was already doing that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, they needed to kind of adapt and find a way there. And I don't think they did as well as they could have, but it's really hard to say because the space was so saturated. It's pretty crowded. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was amazing saturated. You know, it's interesting. um, Sentiment, manufacturer's sentiment varies wildly around the world. And so mm-hmm. you can be the bomb in, you know, everywhere. And like people in America might not even know you, you know, literally. I mean, we are such a unique market, the way we are structured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, some manufacturers that I have represented over the years really resent that the U S is different. Everything's different. <laughs> You know, we, we drive on the wrong side of the road. We earn money. We don't use metrics. Man, why you have to be so different, you know? If you never leave the U.S., you don't know you're different. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. I know, right? And so It's all normal to me. Yeah. I think even with certain products, it's even regional. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember back in the recording studio heydays in the 90s, back in the home studio, you know, if, if, you, were, if you were in Texas, you had Tascam recorders. If you went mm-hmm. to either coast, you had ADATs, you know, when they're coming out with this modular yeah. A-track recorders and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, out there, yeah. you couldn't sell a Tascam if you wanted to. Out here, in here, in, in the central region, it's like, it was all Tascam. You know, ADATs were done. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> even Zoom came on much stronger on the east and west coast uh, mm-hmm. long before it, it caught fire in on the, the third coast. The, first, the first ever um, Twisted Pair transmission company that i'm i remember and i might be wrong here is magenta magenta research and yeah they're right up here or they were right they were 
10 miles up the road from me, 10 miles north of where I live in Connecticut. They can't, they yeah, have I think base up in first time Canada implementation well. of Magenta that I did was probably 2002. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. And it was, uh, that was, Extron also had theirs about the same time because they had that yeah, had that special uh, cable and that kind I of think stuff. Visionary Solutions was pretty early to the dance. I know mm, uh, Netstreams, which came from the CDM. SVSI, that's, that's sort of a... a SVSI was definitely... Well, see, okay. But before SVSI was around, Netstreams, uh, Michael Braithwaite... They were in a residential company. We're already doing it. And that acquisition by Clear One became the View product, which is now the View yeah. Pro product. Um, I think SVSI just did a better job of explaining it. And mm. they just they just kept plugging away and plugging away and plugging away. And they accepted all this responsibility for being the ones to educate the market. Yeah. Because I know I, yeah, we did, did yeah. yeah, we did a million view presentations. Uh, and the engineer that I worked with for Clear One, who became the regional sales manager, well, he came from the NetStream's acquisition. So he loved that product. He wanted to talk about AV over IP all day long. But mm -hmm. this was 2012, 2013, 2014. And people's little eyes would just glaze over. Uh, it was yeah. like, oh, well, if it goes on a computer, I'm like, are y'all really that inbred? Really? I, I mean, a lot of people were just confused, too. You know, they... You, you would say AV over IP and they would think HD base T or some sort of old time, you know, VGA balance. And it just wasn't that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It was hard to get them across the threshold when they're like, well, wait, I already have that. You know, I've got this yeah. little box on one end and this little box on the other end. And you plug a cable. Like, no, not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. No, because yeah. we started using SVSI. SVSI was a great product. They were, they were the first one that was fully baked. You guys know Josh Petru? I do know Josh Petru. Why do you ask? I think he was SVSI for a while. He was BTX too in my last couple of years. I was I was uh, actually his sort of inside partner when mm. he was trying to sell BTX down in your area. I remember that. He said if he got a sales to X amount that they were going to put a warehouse in Texas, actually. That was the goal he that was, we were working for. Boy. Sounds like he was so full of shit it was coming out of his mouth. Uh, uh, that was not... Hey Josh. Hey Josh, I didn't say it. Rob said it, okay? Josh. There. So <laughs> hey, I don't you know, have to get in trouble. Yeah. I actually spent uh, I actually went down there and worked with him for a week. It was like a quasi vacation work week for me when we were partners in 2015. Oh, yeah. I spent the better part of a week in Austin. What a great town. Yeah, Man. it is a great town. I I love Austin yeah. as well. Um but yeah, definitely SVSI. They they were good. Why, why did you eventually leave yeah. BTX after all that time? Um, it goes back to the question he asked me in the, at least for me, you know, and, right, I, right. and, and I can certainly talk way more about it offline and, and say yeah. way more things about it offline. Um, but, but for me, and the, and the most diplomatic way to say it is it goes back to the question he asked me in the interview, you know, how am I going to keep you here this long? And I, uh -huh was completely frank with him. I said, keep giving me interesting, interesting things to do. Yeah. And all I can think is that after 15 years, he didn't have anything to give me anymore. And in a lot of ways, he was probably right. When they hired me, they, they had started calling themselves the most technical 
inside sales team in, in the business, in the distribution business, right? Better yeah. than Liberty, better than whoever else is, you know, a comprehensive up here, TechNEC, whoever. We, we thought then that we, when you called us, you were going to get some of the most technical people. And I felt that, you know, walking in off of the streets of Manhattan, right. knowing everything about VGA, BNC, uh, line level audio, um, signal processing, I could talk about anything with anybody at that point. And I really mm-hmm. felt that. Um, and over the years, I watched, I watched them change. And I watched them change as I took jobs. So let me, go through, let me go through my time at BTX and tell you about all the interesting things that he asked me to do, right? Uh, he asked me to start as a sales engineer. And I, and I loved it. And I kind of cut my teeth doing a lot of orders, learning part numbers and stuff like that. Um, in like 2004, or I guess 2005, the spring of 2005, he promoted me to manage the rep channel. Mm-hmm. I never thought I would do this in my life. I never thought I'd be interested in it, reports and, you know, phone calls and cracking the whip <laughs> on these lazy ass reps. <laughs> I <laughs> resent that. <laughs> and uh, I did not think I'd be interested in it, but it was what he asked me to do. And what a great experience. It gave me such an insight into that aspect of the business. I know. And it also happened to be at a time when BTX was transitioning from outside rep firms. Mm-hmm. We talked about EDA at the happy hour the other day and some of the guys I knew at EDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, from outside rep firms to direct reps. Mm-hmm. People who, one person who lives in the territory. So when I, when I talked about this certain gentleman from EDA the other day, well, you're going to have on, and I want you to say hi for me, by the way. Uh, the reason I mentioned him is because EDA was our rep of the year, mm-hmm. but we only had EDA in the Southeast. When we named them our rep of the year, we had just picked them up in Texas. And so when we went to this, this dinner to, to congratulate them for being the rep of the year, we felt the guy who abused the privilege the most was the guy we had not yet worked with. All the guys that we were, we were um, you know, having the party for were just being nice and respectful. And the other guy who had not earned us a set yet was drinking our wine and <laughs> eating our food. Absolutely. It was, it was cool, though. I, I thought it was very funny. So, um, But, yeah, so I was doing um, rep channel management, and I was helping the company transition from one rep model to another, from a, a, mm-hmm. a, a manufacturer's rep where your territory is covered by five or six people to one guy who's traveling the territory and being a little more specific. And that was a good thing for us because when you have 40 lines and you're asking a rep to go in with you, well, number one, you're a distributor. You're not, you're barely a manufacturer, right? Right. Um, But you're asking a rep to go in and represent you. Um, That rep's already got, you know, a, a, a TV line, a speaker line, a, uh, uh, Rob, sure. But I, w- I was with a rep firm that we repped not only, you know, mm-hmm. a dozen manufacturers, but we actually repped two different distributors simultaneously. Yeah. Oh, no. And, and you certainly can. But here's the thing, Michelle. If, you, if, you're, if you're walking in with LG, Sure Microphones, uh-huh. um, I don't know, DMB speakers and BTX, you're not leading with BTX. Right, you're not leading with BTX and and you know great deals on Neutrik XLR connectors. It depends. It really depended a lot on the regional sales manager, um, mm. 
and their investment in the territory. So if I was working with somebody that was like really invested and really cared and was just on it and driving it, and then they were, uh, they were a priority. Actually, if I'll I was, attest to that. Cause right. I, and, have a, I have a great relationship with the Liberty P, uh, rep. Yeah. And that came from Michelle was there. Yeah. Rep. You know, her firm that she worked at at the time, you know, rep Liberty. Okay. Which then I got connected, and that—that that, that is stuff that I'm interested in as as an AV yeah. designer. It's yeah. like I need to know all the stuff. I need to know all the little doodads yeah. and hicks, and I love having one. And Mike Salura cares. Yeah. Now, and, on the other hand, if I'm working with someone like, say, a Josh Petru, you're right. Maybe I don't. Hey, Josh. <laughs> <Shout out> Josh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't care as what much. The, me, I think Josh is at Hall Research now, and I think he's doing a bang. He is he another is. another uh, AVP concern. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's um, funny. So you know what? There's a good chance that you might be right. I'm I'm coming at it strictly from a, a BTX standpoint, and I can't say for sure. But our suspicion is always like we are not high on their list. But when we put our own guy in the territory, yes, it we're, can. we're always at the top of the list. And well, that, no, I've over discussed time, that. That over time was how we transitioned the model uh, from one to the other. I will say that, that one of our last reps in um, Texas blew me away. Mizzen um, Marketing and specifically uh, Lisa. Yeah, uh, who was Lisa was amazing. At the time, mm-hmm. now, yeah. I don't know how now Lisa Peevler. Peevler, okay. Peevler, married uh, to Michael Peevler, at, Atlas IED. Um, one, uh, two or three Infocoms ago, I'm, I probably saw her at, in Orlando. And she was walking around, with, taking a group of clients around, but she was using one of her uh, brands while they walked around. She was using the assistive listening uh, uh-huh. brand. And she was doing her presentations in the very crowded and very noisy exhibit hall through the uh, AOS. Yeah. Nice. nice idea. I was so impressed with that. I know I mentioned it at the time, and I don't. She probably doesn't even remember it, but I was like, "That's nice thinking, right there." You know, more oh, yeah. doing that. That's just well, see, now Lisa is not only thoughtful but a total class act. Yeah. I'm probably not the exactly the same that way but i think i'm good at like in the i was i i considered infocom as a manufacturer more of a traffic cop situation like i'm an air traffic controller right Mm -hmm. and so yes i will be with people probably for every hour of every day somewhere doing something 90 percent of it on the show floor during the show floor hours but i'm Mm -hmm. also going to run into other people that don't want me to tie them up you know what i mean that i can go oh what are you looking at what are you looking for okay i need you to make sure you go Mm -hmm. here and talk to this person i need you to go here you know and this is why and this is why this is i want you to consider and and i i don't know i i I enjoyed that i really hated being tethered to a booth um whoo yeah yeah, this last one that was you know what you do strike me as as uh someone who would think that way too like you would you would take all your other experiences and incorporate it and find a way to to make it a little bit better you know because everyone's kind of just doing the same thing they're walking up shaking someone's hand and like what do you got today you talk about your booth but the way the way she was doing it and the way i can imagine anyone who who wants to do it a little bit better wants to do it a little bit unique yeah i think so yeah, but she's smart like that. She's very creative too. She comes up with good ideas. Um, and I don't think she was 
I think she's now officially, uh, she's got her own territory, but I think at the time she was more office administrator. She was more the big, yeah. Support. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so if, if she's, she's an actual rep now, I don't see her doing something is. like that. As, she escorting is. Oh, she would do right. both. She was. Yeah. She does all the heavy lifting. Dave Taylor mm-hmm. just phones it in. Hi, Dave. Shout out. Um, yeah, Lisa's yeah, been running that show for him. I mean, she she does it all. She does it all backwards and in heels. By the way, they better be listeners, you know. This thing started with Texas people. I would hope so. I think there. so. If Miz and Marketing is not listening to this podcast by now, there's something wrong. They have you guys always, are invading New York. They have always, are they? No, you guys are. Oh, us. I was like, have, are your, they taking over the Northeast too? You don't, I do, you don't expand uh, in New York until you got Houston locked down, Texas. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we tend to gravitate to what we know and what, and we were initially just recording in, in studio, right? And then I was like, well, I'm used to doing more of the national thing, and I think there's ways we could leverage Zoom. And Jerry, of course, is always game for anything. So Jerry's just like, right. yeah, sure. All right. I like you guys yeah. reaching out. I, I say continue, you know, get someone on the West Coast in too, you know, let's see what's going on out there. I think this oh, is a absolutely. great idea. Oh, I, have, I already have someone in mind, actually, that we be up on good, deck. Good. Yeah, one of, I mean, this whole crazy idea started because uh, it was actually four of us initially and two, the other two are work for consultants. And they were like, well, politically, we can't really be associated with an opinion kind of thing. So they had to kind of like, you know, slide into the background. They're scaredy cats, whatever. They're scaredy cats. I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little hesitation about all the things I just said about BTX, but I feel like they've been fairly positive, so I'm not going to worry about it. Well, it, it, we'll, we'll let you listen to it, uh, the final cut, and if there's something that you... After I'm, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about that. I'm not that concerned about it. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. It's all I good. mean, are they sending you a stimulus check? All right, then. <laughs> No, we've, they we've got they got a decade it. and a half. I think you paid your dues, right? right. I mean, it was a nice <laughs> win for them. So good. Come right. on, exactly. You left it better than when you of, got there. Yeah. So was BTX your last gig? No, no. It was my last one before the last cover. So I, I got let okay. go there at the end of 2017. And okay. uh, so if I move, if I move, say from the the rep channel, uh, once that was once that sort of transition was complete, they didn't need a rep channel manager anymore. It was just direct reports to either a sales manager or the president. So I moved into, I moved back into engineering. I became, uh, what was the plan for me all along from, you know, the very first months there that I was going to become their applications engineer, you know, the, gotcha. the main engineer at BTX. And that's sort of where I, what I moved into. And you guys probably, I mean, you ever use the uh, Maxbox connectors, the Cyrus VGAs, or the, the DB9 connectors? Mm-hmm. screw terminals on the back yeah. btx has a patent for those so oh, really? that's that's their baby uh i can remember when i first got there the first one they invented is uh not so active anymore it was a s video it was a panel mount s video connector and you know you would stick it in the panel and have four screw terminals in the back the y the ground and the c in the ground oh that. okay yeah uh so that was the first one and it kind of came and went we sold a lot of those uh the VGA was the first one that really exploded. They called it the Easy VGA, the first one. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they finally decided they, they were going to go for a patent and they perfected it, but the Max Block was about the third version of it. And it was sort of the, the highest evolution of the species at that point. So we did a Max Block for Max Blocks for VGA 
And for DB9, VGA is sort of gone by the wayside, but DB9 is still out there selling and people are still loving the idea that they can lock in RS-232 with, you know, three quick turns of a screw, you know, quick strip, drop it in and, and you're ready to go. So, uh, yeah, that sold, uh, gosh, I'd say since about, I think we won uh, uh, some sort of an award at Cedia in probably 2008 or 2009. For the DB9, that, that was going to be the one to hang on, but it did. Yeah, well, the 232, that kind of become mandatory now at job sites that where they don't allow hot work because all the, you know, everybody's getting so overly safety conscious to the point where they're. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot, you know, you got to just to solder in some places, especially if you work in the energy industry out here, the regulations yeah. have tightened up so badly that. Mm-hmm. It's almost literally impossible to solder something on site. Okay. You want to have to, my, you have my to. guys don't like doing it anyway. I buy a Neutrik uh, Annie 22 or something like that. If I get the XLR version, I get so much shit from them if I didn't buy the terminal block version. That's all really? I want to do is, is screw them down. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm from the old school. So I love it's like to me, the solder is the better connection no matter what. I don't know. I, 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 I suppose it is a better connection, and I and I've gotten really good at soldering over the years, so I don't mind it so much. But yeah, yeah. Um, we we actually tried it. We had a panel mount uh, XLR solder as well that we co-designed with Neutrik, and I think we were trying to do a cable mount, but mm-hmm. um, I was actually not really. I I don't, I don't want to say opposed to it, but I I didn't think it was going to be as valuable as the VGA or the DB9 because uh, XLR is so easy to solder, right? Yeah, yeah. Soldering a 15-pin VGA is a fucking nightmare. Soldering a DB9, yeah. if you have to do six for RS-232 or five, whatever it was in the old yeah, days. Yeah, you're doing 485, yeah. Um, then it was kind of a pain in the ass, too, and it was just so hard to get in there, you know? So this, everybody loved the screw terminals for that, but for XLR, nobody really cared, you know? They were so yeah. easy to do. Yeah, because this is probably the only, the, the only things that are still soldered is going to be audio connections, XLR, or... And depending again of uh, the standard of it, um, but yeah, the D, the DV nine two thirty two that's still very prevalent, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it's gonna gonna last. Yeah, that's the yeah. one that's gonna probably hang around till the end of the patent, I would think. But yeah, uh, a couple other things I did while I was there as the uh, applications engineer is a, a multi pin connector. We designed uh, what we call the ProBlox connector. Mm-hmm. And that had kind of a short life too. That was a, a video and audio multi-pin connector designed uh, based on the EDAC standard, those uh, rectangular EDAC connectors. Mm-hmm. We built our first one. I think it had nine videos and nine channels of audio and maybe be a, I want to say six channels of video maybe in a, an EDAC 90 footprint and also oh, wow. the same latching mechanism and everything else. And it was the audio contacts were EDAC audio contacts. Do you remember when EDAC, um, took a kind of a turn at video connectors for a little while in like the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. We, we sort of grabbed that technology from them and, and redesigned the video contacts too. Right. The idea of this is that we were going to make a multi, a multi-conductor connector that guys could feel terminate, right? It was going to be so easy to terminate. You, uh, the audio and the controls were just an EDAC termination, an EDAC crimp, and then the videos were just going to be... Um, HD coax, but they were going to be fairly easy to do too. The videos uh, never quite got easy enough. It turned out that the tools that were going to be required if people were going to field terminate these were 
probably close to a thousand dollars in costs. Ah, yeah. And and the video turned out to be way harder than you thought. You needed like the specific uh, crimp. You needed two different crimp tools: one to crimp the contact, and the other to crimp the ferrule. Yeah. And you needed a specific uh, electric uh, strip tool for this, uh, the proper dimensions. Yeah, exactly. And it turned out to be. It was just too difficult uh, and too cost prohibitive for people to sort of take to it in what we thought was its design. And that was you sell them all the pieces and the tools and they do it themselves. Yeah. But what I was able to do at that point was just to kind of turn it around and start just building them in house. You know, I remember the first pro blocks assembly I saw, I saw our guys make that, uh, you know, we decided we're going to, you tell us what you need. You got a podium, you're going back to a control room. What are the signals and how many of them? It's as easy as that. And we'll design the, the connector and, you know, how far do you need this, uh, uh, umbilical to be what's the fan out links and everything else what are the connectors on the, the fan out ends and we would just custom make them at that point point. Right. that was about a solid five years of uh really good business you know and it was it was taking something that might have floundered as a a self-terminating thing and at least turning it into a viable product where uh you know it could be a custom made every solution is custom made at that point so your your current uh, and then one of the last things that go ahead I was just curious. Oh, uh, with your current position, mm-hmm. um, uh, are you said you were on furlough? So, what is fur- there's different versions of furlough, right? Um, multiple mm-hmm. definitions. So, it's a very broad term. For you, what does that mean? What is your hope? Mm-hmm. What is your plan B? Do you have a plan B? <laughs> Probably not right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, the funny thing is, I'm, I'm I was running operations for him, and I was uh, the first person to get fur- furloughed. But I spent the two weeks before I got furloughed pounding into his head, "You got to use the word furlough." Yeah, don't say laid off. You furlough. You say furlough. And for me, I, I don't know that there's I don't know of the multiple definitions. I do know that at least as a business owner, you can explain a furlough as a positive for both. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a positive for the company because the idea is that you're still on payroll and you, you come right back on board very quickly. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's a little bit of unemployment, but the transition is, is smooth coming back and all the paperwork's done. It's good for an employee. It's good for the, um, uh, or that's good for the employer, but it's good for the employee also in that they don't have to be proving to unemployment that they're looking for. That got exempted for everybody this time around anyway, mm-hmm. but in a normal situation, you, as yes. an employee, you'd want to be furloughed because then unemployment's not hounding you and saying, who did you apply to this week? Give me right. a list of three places that you applied to. You don't have that requirement. Exactly. Exactly. So Other than that, there's not a lot. And in terms of a plan B, uh, I will say that we got our loan approved, our PPP. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. CARES Act loan. CARES Act, yep. We got our eight weeks of payroll approved, and now... Whenever the money hits our bank account, I'm probably going back for sure for eight weeks. And I absolutely have eight weeks of work I could be doing, whether we're busy or not. I have yeah. know, eight weeks of things that have sat at the bottom of my stack for two years now. Sure. So I can I can certainly do that. But when the eight weeks is up, I don't know what happens then. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to use that eight weeks to prepare as if at the end of the eight weeks, we're going back to work. But if all our preparation is for naught and after eight weeks, nothing's still happening, 
yeah, I'm probably back out again. Right. And do you like what you're doing? You like that type of position, that type of. Um, I I do like it. Um, Where do you add the most value? Do you add the most value in that position, or no, no, no? Well, and 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 it, it's not as easy as just a yes or no answer. There, um, I agree. She, he's he was a customer of mine when I was at BTX. He was a really good customer. Oh, he nice. used to say, I, I need you know, I need this, and I'd say, okay, but you only need two. Let's get you two. And he'd be, no, give me six. You know, I know I'm going to need more. Hey, great. So, uh, you know. When when I finished with BTX, we started having conversations, and uh, you know we'd always had conversations about him. He was a young guy, and like I said, a, really good with speakers. As a kid, he was working with speakers and really has an understanding of them. But he's, you know, not ready to be a businessman yet. He's only thirty two years old. I think he just turned thirty three. Um, so he needs some guidance. He he knew he needed some guidance there, and that's kind of what he asked me to do. You know? Nice. It's it's just been a chaotic, you know, him just trying to hold the reins all sure. these years. He just had one person to come in and take one of the reins. He could take the other one and maybe something could happen. And so that's what I did. I, I, I came in and started working for him. He called me his operations manager and I used to go in every day and say, what are your three biggest problems today? Which yeah. ones can I help? You know, nice. it, became, it became his pain points, what I could take off his plate. After about, I don't know, a little over a year, I realized that what I was taking off his his plate was a lot of clerical stuff. I was doing a lot of purchasing for him. I was doing a lot of scheduling, keeping the trains running on time, right? You, you've yeah. got uh, at least two or three uh, job tracks that you want going at all times, right? So that's got to be happening, and the purchasing has to happen two weeks before the job happens and mm-hmm. all that other stuff. But that, I wasn't doing much more than that. And what we realized is that as his operations manager, I was – the highest paid employee he had mm-hmm. and I was really doing the work after a while. Once we settled into our routine, mm-hmm. I was kind of doing the work of what maybe an assistant could do for about half that price. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to what we talked about at the happy hour the other day about me talking my way out of jobs. This is me saying, why are you paying me this? You could be doing this. And I was lucky enough that he saw it and also now thinks uh, that he might want me to transition into more of a sales position than an yeah and I'm, you know what I'm, i've done so many things in my life that driving around and visiting customers all day great jerry it's up, man. let's go let's go check it out man it's, it's fun it's I, fun the, to build the, build relationships in the, two or, in the three or four months that i've been kind of trying to transition from one to the other the places i've been and the, the things that we're talking about doing there's a parkour gym in mount kisco new york that's going to go in i don't know what a parkour gym is supposed to look like but i know they're going to need a Big ass cluster of speakers right in the middle of this warehouse. Where <laughs> that's right, yeah. So, nice big sound system. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of crazy places that I'm I'm walking into now, and then just I'm seeing things that I never thought I'd be looking at before. It's just a lot of fun, a lot of fun. A trampoline park I was in just a couple weeks ago. They all have audio systems. Parks. That's right, and I'll they can, the, they none the of them. The liability agreement they must sign are insane. But see, the thing is, they're all franchisees, so corporate coordinates all of the trampolines going in, but they don't realize they need the audio until the trampolines have already been installed. And, <laughs> okay, and you have like two now. weeks, and it's <laughs> opening in two weeks, and then they, they look up and go, yeah. we don't have any speakers. And you're like, well, I can't get a man lift in here now. I have to build scaffolding because you have all of these trampolines <laughs> mounted off the wall. Yeah, you see where I'm going with this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, 
and story. It's not even the audio for me. It's the lighting in those places. They've got like black lights and they do parties and things. They, they turn yeah. the lights down low. And these yeah. kids are bouncing all over the place. It was just an accident waiting to happen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. So, uh, so if people are trying to find you, if they're trying to reach you, Rob, how, how do they go about that? Um, I guess they can find me on LinkedIn. I'm just Rob Lutz on LinkedIn. I don't know that there's anything special for that. Uh, they can certainly also find me on Twitter. And uh, that's at RL1AV. And I got to give a shout out to uh, your partner from ISE, Kate. Kate Calderon. Calderon. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, she was uh, she was tweeting a few months ago about wanting to change her handle, and I didn't know it was possible. I only got on Twitter because the BTX marketing department said everybody get Twitter accounts, right? So I opened yeah. a personal Twitter account that got really blue really quickly, and I had to like. I now have two Twitter, Twitter accounts. I have a personal and a business. But my first real business account was BTX RL1. RL1 was my sort of call sign there. Yeah. I didn't think that you could change that until you Kate read hers. Started tweeting about it and I was DMing with her. I'm like, how do I do it? How do I do it? By the end of that day, I had mine changed already. She's still tastefully Kate. I guess she decided not. Well, because we all like the name. I mean, we didn't know it had mm-hmm. anything with her That's dreams. True. Her childish, immature dreams that she thought she was going to be a professional food blogger. Love you, girl. Shout wow, out. Well, I'm just finding out now, too. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we just thought it was because she had great taste because she just seemed yeah. like a classy little act. So, yeah, I had Good no point. idea. I, I, was remember, like, yeah. I, I do remember most of the people saying, oh, just keep it, just keep it. But uh, I was like, wait a minute. You can change these things? I can get, I know. you know, I can break away and be my own person and not be well, tied if, to it. If I had thought about it, I would have named myself like, you know, I don't know, lovely Michelle or just something that makes me sound pleasant because that's, you know, it's like, because even if you're being a jerk, if your name is lovely, I mean, you're being lovely. Hello. What are, you're obviously- it's impossible to be a jerk at that point. That's true. Uh, well, we really appreciate it. And thanks for joining us. I appreciate it too, guys. Yeah. Um, sorry. I, I feel like I just talked about myself. I wish we could have got more into sort well, of was- nuts and bolts. Well, well, that's kind of like the whole the point of these shows. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll yeah. do another show. Um, we also have our our happy hours as well. We, yeah, our regular mostly AV podcast is you know we sometimes we bring in groups of people, not too many because we like mm. to have everybody get a chance to talk. But yeah. we'll bring a couple people. Um, so yeah, we'll bring you back for that. But like Jerry Absolutely. said, this, this is all and about listen, the guests. If you, if you find that it's hard to stimulate some of these other guys up here in New York to get on the show and. and give you that you know that new york audience that you're craving just That's give me a call absolutely absolutely you a, appreciate you need the a help. third sidekick or something let's do it <laughs> all right good. Cool. cool well thanks cool. Jerry. i appreciate it thanks guys thanks rob and uh, everybody have a great day have a great week great. stay right, safe job. wash your hands the good work <laughs> well thank you for listening to mostly av who we are show we hope you have a wonderful day and that you stay safe Until next time, take care and stay AV awesome.